First Kings 11, beginning in verse 11, the word of our God. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king of Edom. For it happened when David was in Edom, and Joab the commander of the army had gone up to bury the slain after he had killed every male in Edom, because for six months Joab remained there with all Israel until he had cut down every male in Edom that Hadad fled to Egypt, he and a cer- certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. Hadad was still a little child. Then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house, apportioned food for him, and gave him land. And Hadad found a gr- great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him as wife the sister of his own wife, that is, the sister of the queen uh, Tapanes. Then the sister of Tapanes bore him Ganubath, his son, whom Tapanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Ganubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. So when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers, and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, But what have you lacked with me, that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, Nothing, but do not, uh, but do let me go anyway. And God raised up another adversary against Solomon, Rezan the son of Elida, uh, who had fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. So he gathered men to himself, became captain over a band of raiders, because David killed those of Zobah. And they went to Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus. He was an adversary in Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused, and he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. Then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerida, whose mother, uh, mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way and he had clothed himself with a new garment and the two were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, 
Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes, and keep my statutes and my judgments, as did his father David. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, because I have made him rule uh, him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart's desires, and you shall be a king over Israel. Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments as my father Dave, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was forty years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. The word of our God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, read these sad things and long to have peace in our hearts despite them. So we ask that our King Jesus would reign in our hearts now and instruct us and direct us for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I, I was thinking this last week, and I may have said this multiple times, so it won't surprise any of you. But if I were to write a commentary on Kings, uh, I would start by talking about the most important chapter for the book of Kings, which is Second Samuel 7. Uh, here we have it again, that conversation between uh, God and Solomon because of Solomon's sin, simply brings us back to the covenant that he had made with David. That if David and his sons kept God's law and honored and served him, they would have an enduring throne. And there's a lot that you can unpack there. And certainly there's the beauty uh, that we see hinted at throughout our passage today, that even when they fail, God will discipline them, but he will not completely remove the house of David. And so we have that knowledge even in 2 Samuel 7, and certainly hinted at in our chapter, that despite Solomon and despite his sons, there will be a king who will reign eternally for the throne of David. Um, but 
all this repetition, I think we need to just repeat this one more time with First Kings. Uh, this repetition of the covenant threats and promises of Second Samuel 7 remind us that God is just. If by this point in First Kings you're saying, we get it, Second Samuel 7, well, then how can we ever complain when we do receive discipline? Solomon certainly can't complain. He's been reminded over and over again. And in our lives, we so quickly complain when God has repeated himself over and over about his law, about his desires, about his expectations for us, um, about his way of salvation. And we try to ignore all these things. And then we act like somehow a good God couldn't let something happen or a good God wouldn't judge me for this. And I think the book of Kings by this point has made its point very clearly that God is just. He has given many warnings. Um, So we can't claim God is unfair. But I think also this reference again and again to the covenant reminds us, as it does here, I love the way it's stated uh, in, um, in the end of this chapter, verse 38, he says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 30, 36, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. It's such an encouraging reminder of the source of our hope. There's a light that David's house will have in Jerusalem forever. And when we come to the New Testament, we find that Christ, the light of the world, of the line of David, will reign eternally on a throne in the new heavens and the new earth, and indeed is reigning now. So even in the midst of discipline and hardship, which is what this chapter is about, we can know that there's the hope at the other end of it. Well, let's, uh, I'm going to try to very quickly just do a few exegetical thoughts through this whole passage, but I want to focus mainly on um, a a couple of applications for us tonight. Uh, First, uh, to walk through this chapter. So we have um, 11 through 13. We just considered that it takes us to 2 Samuel 7. But then we see how God disciplines. God has warned and said that if, in 2 Samuel 7 he says this, if the, child, the son of David turns against me and sins, then I will discipline him as a father. And that's what we're seeing in verses 14 through 40. God disciplining Solomon as a father disciplines the one he loves. And so we find enemies. Solomon, the, 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 the king of Jerusalem, the one whose reign is dis- defined, if you're going to pick one word, it's his own name, Shalom. Uh, Solomon's name is Shalom, peace, wholeness. Uh, and yet, that thing is stripped away. We read in verses 14 through 22 of Hadad the Edomite, and in 23 through 25 of Rezin. And these are two enemies that are holdovers from David's campaigns. So um, I'm not going to make judgment calls on the violence or any of that of David's reign now. You can go back and 
listen to the sermons on Second Samuel if you want to. Um, but there was certainly violence. And when there's violence, there if there are any survivors, there are enemies that you've created. And so David had these enemies who fled and hid because they were scared of David. And yet when they hear that David and Joab are gone, they decide to come out. And it seems from what we read in these passages that probably these two men were around for the entire reign of Solomon. But most commentators, at least many of the best commentators, agree that while these men were probably enemies of Solomon his whole reign, we're being given the mention of them here to emphasize uh, that the Holy Spirit seems to be saying they were enemies all along, but they didn't really matter. And that now, in Solomon's old age, when God is disciplining him, suddenly God has removed a restraint from these men, and though they'd always been his enemies and failed and been unsuccessful, now, because God's disciplining Solomon, the peaceful barrier is removed, and Solomon, at the end of his reign, finds these men much harder to fight than he did earlier on. That's how many commentators understand this. They were there all along, but God had put this boundary around Solomon, hedging him and Jerusalem in, in this peaceful reign, in the beauty of the reign of the prince who built the temple. But as God disciplines Solomon, that barrier is removed, and these men, these raiders, these Edomites, they come, and they are able to have a, a negative effect on the end of Solomon's reign. We'll come back to that in a moment, but then we also are introduced to Jeroboam, whom we'll be spending more time with, of course, in the in the months ahead, or, well, at least a couple of weeks ahead. Uh, and we find him in 26 through 40. And I think we have to walk very carefully through these verses to understand some of what's being said. Uh, the first thing to note is this story uh, and I'm, I'm going to do some of these verses out of order. So we have the story about the prophet coming to Jeroboam. They meet. He declares in a very classic prophetic manner through the ripping of garments. Uh, remember Samuel and Saul and the ripped garment? There's almost this feel of a reflection upon that here. And so through this ripped garment, he shows Jeroboam, I'm going to take 10 out of 12 tribes from the house of David. I'm going to make a covenant right here with you. There's a contingent covenant that God is making with Jeroboam in this passage. And uh, it's ref it reflects the covenant with David so much, doesn't it? It reflects the covenant with David because God is basically saying, if you and your house are faithful to me, I will make the same covenant with you. I will establish a lasting throne with you as I did with David. Saul isn't mentioned notice. So Jeroboam's not being just offered what Saul had. He's being offered what David had. And that's an astonishing thing. That God is offering this contingently on, will Jeroboam be faithful? In fact, as you look at what's said of David's own house here, you can reflect, 
that the eternal aspect of David's household graciously from God is based only on David. All his sons are going to know discipline until Christ. But because of David, it's going to last. We, we could say that probably with Jeroboam, this same thing could have been the case. If Jeroboam had been faithful to the Lord, then God would have established some form of uh, lasting throne for his line, even if his children sinned. But, of course, we know how that story is going to go, but we'll leave that for now. Notice that, uh, that God says, I will take, verse 31, verse 35, and verse 37, I will take from David. I will take from David. I will take from David. God is very clear to Jeroboam that he is the one that will take and give. He does not say to Jeroboam, Jeroboam, go and take. I think that's very important. God also makes it very clear to Jeroboam that it will not be during Solomon's lifetime. And uh, and yet we find up in verse 27 that he rebelled against the king, verses 26 and 27. So God says, wait, and I will give it to you. And Jeroboam goes and tries to take it for himself. I think that's a very important thing to note here because then as as um, Solomon... Uh, tries to have him killed, it's Solomon who may or may not know the specifics of what the prophet has said to Jeroboam. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but he's trying to kill a man who's rebelling against him. That may not be fully right on Solomon's part, and certainly shows he's less gracious than he was when he started his reign, perhaps, but he's acting against a rebel, and not against someone who's following the command of the Lord. So that's one thing we need to note. Jeroboam here is not waiting for God to give him the kingdom as promised. He's trying to take the whole kingdom for himself. Remember David when he was given uh, the blessing of God and Saul was still trying to kill him. And David wouldn't touch a hair on Saul's head. He wouldn't lay a finger on the anointed one of God, even though God had publicly, through the prophet, ripped the nation away from him and then anointed David. David would not, would not press forward his own approach to the throne. In fact, he did everything he could to guard the life of Saul. And yet Jeroboam here is promised something when Solomon dies. And not only is it not enough, he wants all 12 tribes, but he can't wait for it and he rebels. It's a dangerous thing and we're going to see the eventual results of this for Jeroboam in future lessons. But we are given this reminder though as well in uh, verse 39 I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. We're pointed ahead again to that hope. Well, well, that's the exegetical glancing at this text. 
I think there are three things I want to just briefly reflect on and leave you to talk about in your homes or to pray and meditate on on your own this week. Um, First, we need to remember, and this passage shows us, that no earthly ruler can bring peace. If there was ever a human on the face of this planet who would bring peace that lasted to people, it was Shlomo, the one God loved, who went to the throne with the name Shalom, peace, and reigned in a time when when there have been claims the Holy Spirit has given us in the first 11 chapters that there was peace throughout the days of Solomon. Even though these two, the, this Edomite and this, this uh, man from uh, Zobah are, are actively against Solomon his whole reign, we only hear about them here because they're insignificant. There is peace in the land. And yet we need to remember that even Solomon cannot retain that. When he turns from the Lord, the people lose the peace, which reminds us where the peace came from in the first place. It wasn't the wisdom of Solomon, and it wasn't the, the power of Solomon, and it wasn't the, the peace that he just happened to like. It was the God whom he had served who had peace for his people. And Solomon can't keep that while rejecting God. Solomon can't wage war on God through idolatry and claim the peace that God alone offers. And if that's true of Solomon, who else could we possibly think could bring us peace? This is really important. We're coming up on another election not long from now. And everyone's going to offer us peace, some kind of peace. When we look at peace in the scripture, there's earthly peace. And that can be defined. I was looking at a, a, a biblical dictionary this week. What did they have to say about the word peace in the Old Testament? Under earthly peace, it lists strife, absence of strife, and it lists wholeness. Those are the two sides of shalom in the Hebrew language. On the one hand, it's absence of strife. On the other half, uh, hand, wholeness. And I was thinking about here in in our country and the presidential campaigns or the campaign for governor or whoever, aren't those so many of the things we hear about? If we were to hear a presidential debate, how much of it would be about absence of strife? What's your view on whatever war? What's your view on whatever strife, right? We're, we're going to be given uh, a lot of hot air that pretends like it's going to bring a solution to warfare. Or we're going to hear a lot about wholeness. Wholeness, like what are we doing for the poor? Or what are we doing for uh, our, our country being bound and unified together? Uh, uh, see, I'm, I'm not even picking a political side here. All sides are offering wholeness or absence of strife, the things that make up earthly shalom. And none of them can succeed, and none of them really ever seem to try all that hard in the end. But the reality is only God can bring earthly shalom. Only God. Sometimes he gives us more of it through a pagan ruler 
maybe maybe he would even give it to us <laughs> through someday a, a really faithful ruler. But the reality is, even if we had a godly, godly president, very godly president, only if God says so do we receive earthly shalom. And it cannot be retained even by Solomon. And if earthly peace can't be retained even by Solomon, let alone any of our government, then what about spiritual peace? If Solomon can't give us earthly peace, how would we think anyone less than Solomon would be able to give us eternal peace? Reconciliation, restoration with God. And yet, in that hope, the light from the line of David, we have at the cross justification. Remember remember what uh, Romans 5.1 says about our justification, because we have been justified we now have peace with God. So we need to remember as we gaze at Solomon here that no earthly ruler can bring peace, but we do have the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one who has faced down death and behold, he came up with the victory. He holds the keys of death and Hades. If any can give peace, it's him, and he can, he alone. So we need to keep that perspective through all of the issues that we go through in life. And whenever we find ourselves trusting too much in any mere human for peace, we need to assess ourselves. Maybe come back and look again at Solomon and his sudden fall. Uh, The second thing I want to challenge us uh, with uh, is, um, and this is for our, uh, especially those who have some form of authority. Uh, I, I think all of us, except the children here, have some level of authority somewhere in our lives. Uh, but w- we can start with officers in the church. I think the second thing we have to see from this passage is that no leader is above discipline. Solomon is not above discipline. Jeroboam will not be above discipline. Um, uh, By the way, one thing I I neglected to point out when we were looking through the verses is that Solomon very clearly had treated Jeroboam well. He saw that he was industrious and he put him in a position of authority. So it wasn't like Jeroboam had been given a reason to rebel. But that's just, I think, an important point of the part of the puzzle. But anyway, back to the application. No leader is above discipline. Solomon, even though declared by Nathan the prophet to be one whom the Lord loved at birth, was not above discipline. The king who sat on the throne... The chapter told us that no other king in the world had a throne like this. The king who reigned over a realm where silver was like eh, nothing. The king who built the house of the Lord is not above discipline. And we need to remember that, fellow elders who are here, we need to remember that about ourselves. We are not above discipline. Um, Sometimes that can be forgotten. 
we, since we're doing the book group on husbands uh, on Thursdays, we can just carry that over, right? In the household, the heads of the household, husbands, we need to remember we are not above discipline. Uh, I've I've seen times, not in our church, I've seen times in churches when uh, a husband and wife are struggling in their marriage and there are uh, claims of sin and and there have been sad moments in the history of the church when it was assumed the man must be telling the truth and the wife must be exaggerating uh, without really looking at the evidence. And, uh, I, I think this is an appropriate place to say uh, since four of we husbands from our church are here right now, I think it's appropriate to say that that wouldn't be the way it would happen in this church. That when such a situation happens, both parties must be looked at and the truth must have the victory. If the husband is being abusive, then he is not above discipline. And we need to remember that in our leadership at home. Uh, That's an important part of leadership, to remember that you aren't at the top. You are a servant of God, whatever that area of leadership is. Sunday school teacher, in the workplace, in the secular workplace, you have people under you maybe, uh, as parents, whatever it is, we are not above discipline. Solomon wasn't, and neither are you. In fact, we need to remember what it's sad that Solomon didn't remember. In Hebrews 12, we're told that as sons, we will be disciplined when we sin. Solomon has a lot to say about that in Proverbs, and I'll let you go and read about discipline in the book of Proverbs yourself. And then flowing from that, no leaders above discipline, the the third application I want to challenge you with, all of us, is that no Christian can avoid chastening. That's really what I meant to put that Hebrews 12 comment under. No Christian is above chastening because the Christian is the child of God and the Lord disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. In fact, Hebrews 12 says, if you've never been disciplined by the Lord, it's a sign perhaps you're not really his child. And that seems so harsh. Well, what if, what if I've been the perfect child? The author of Hebrews is just assuming you're honest enough to know that you haven't been the perfect child. But none of us have. We all need the chastening of the Lord when we sin. Some far more uh, deeply uh, have fallen into sin. Solomon permitting these idols in the land and worshiping them is in one category uh rolling your eyes at your parents or something like that is a different category but both require the discipline of the lord children god disciplines you sometimes through your parents uh adults god disciplines us sometimes through the rebuke of a loved one sometimes through the action of our elders or through the state in certain circumstances. But no Christian is above chastening. But remember that it is he, the king, the prince of peace, Jesus, who chastens those he loves. And that gives it a soothing reality 
in the bitterest discipline that he's doing this to work within us to will and to do his good pleasure. He's doing this to draw us back to himself and more richly to obedience. I suggested last week, I believe that happened with Solomon, and whether or not you agreed with that, certainly we should pray it's true for us. When we fall into sin, it's not an earthly leader and ruler who can give us peace. It's the one who's disciplining us because he loves us as his children, who is alone the one who can give us eternal and lasting peace. Solomon, I think our text shows us, got that in the end. The rest of the Acts of Solomon, all he did, written in this book, the period he reigned was this long, and he rested. That's language of peace. He rested. They didn't toss his body into an unmarked grave. They didn't even put his body in the ground and then a giant monument on top. Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Thessalonians tells us exactly what's next for Solomon. He rested, and one day he will rise up and meet the Lord with us in the air. The Lord chastens those he loves, that we might meet him one day in the air. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that we would have humility as we reflect upon the fall of our brother Solomon and all the disaster that came upon Israel because of that. Lord, we pray that we would have humility, humility to trust only in you for our peace, humility to know that we are not above your discipline. Lord, discipline us in love. When we need it, we ask and grant us the humility and the faith to receive that discipline and grow thereby so that we might honor and glorify you so that we might trust you more and so that we might experience daily more and more of your shalom in our lives, the wholeness and the peace we have in Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.